You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Elisa and Yvette, both of whom are national security lawyers who are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. After that disclaimer, hey, thanks for tuning in, everyone, as we celebrate the 19th Amendment, which gave the vote to women, ultimately leading to the presence of women as national security lawyers, a place where women belong. And to this all-women podcast today. (laughs) Let me just say, Yvette, you know this from your past life. Women uphold the rule of law. They've been known to reduce corruption when they serve in governments where that has been a problem. Most importantly for us, uh, the United United States Constitution and America's values are upheld by women and male lawyers. So we'll be bringing you 19 great women in national security law in the next months in celebration of this critical amendment, which, by the way, was, of course, passed, but it wasn't ratified until 1920, so we have some time. Uh, In that vein, we're so glad to have Judy Perry Martinez join us tonight. Judy is not just the president of the ABA, providing professional and moral leadership to attorneys in the country, but she has an incredible career as an attorney working in the aerospace, cyber, defense industry, which she would not call a national security service. I would. I think it's awesome. But among, And that's just among other things. I don't have time to go over this amazing resume. It's dazzling. Judy, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here with all of you women. All right. It would be difficult to list all of the leadership roles that you've had, but just to name a few. And this is – I'm saying this for everybody, not just our female listeners – But uh, you've been the chair of the standing committee on the federal judiciary, which evaluates all nominees to the federal bench, the ABA's lead representative to the United Nations, the chair of the ABA's presidential commission on the future of legal services and, and its commission on domestic violence. You were a member of the ABA Commission on Women in the Profession, the ABA Task Force on Building Public Trust in the American Justice System, a subject which is near and dear to the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security, Um, all of us, uh, and has been spearheaded by several of our individual members um, as well. But between 2003 and 2015, you were at Northrop Grumman Corporation. You served as Assistant General Counsel for Litigation before becoming Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer in 2011. I can only imagine in the aerospace industry, that was a very big job. A very big job. Uh, Then you spent a year as a fellow in residence at the Advanced Leadership Initiative at Harvard University, and you've been a partner in a law firm, and you don't sleep, apparently, ever. And I really love uh, introducing Judy because literally every bullet in that resume is something that's relevant to today. I think people have heard things about uh, the judicial no- nominees, um, and uh, people definitely have heard of Northrop Grumming um, and uh, the United Nations, too. Uh, I think that it's the United Nations. <laughs> maybe Harvard. Um, <laughs> but um, this is really, it's really timely, and it's really great to have you here, Judy. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So let's start with the aerospace industry, which is something that, as a you know, Air Force uh, retired Air Force officer, means a lot to me. How did you get started there, and how did you get to where you got? 
You know, it's one of those great ABA stories, actually. Um, I was at a private law firm in, in practice in New Orleans at Simone Perrigine Smith and Redfern. Had been there for 21 years as a commercial litigator on the management committee um, and really enjoying my time in private practice. And I received a call out of the blue from an ABA colleague from a different state who asked if I would, knew anyone who would be interested in a position, a new position that was being created uh, by Northrop. And um, I said I'd think about it and get back to him. And he called several times, and I realized that they were approaching me about the possibility of joining uh, the company. And I had not done work for the company before, and um, it was a new whole world for me. Um, and I realized what an opportunity it presented to somebody uh, from my state of Louisiana, where there's not a lot of corporate presence, to have this terrific opening of the aperture in terms of what the world uh, would be available to me to learn new things about the law, uh, to experience the work of being with a whole new um, economic sector, um, and to you know hopefully go on and be a leader in that company. And what is it about the aerospace industry that involves national security? Well, you know, the aerospace, aerospace and defense industry is about trust and integrity. Um, it's about really smart people getting together, whether engineers or scientists or physicists, who come together with business people um, and work to protect the country and to really make sure that there's freedom around the world. And if you think about in that context, you know that it's about national security. Um, and what I had the opportunity to do is to sit and listen to people who stretched their intellects and made sure that they were thinking creatively about how they could be more protective of our nation and also make sure that they were about the values of our nation. So I have a, just a quick question, though. It, I mean, one of the things that I think might be interesting for our leaders, and I'll just sort of hit this to correct me if I am wrong, but one of the things that the aerospace industry is is heavily regulated. I think that would be an understatement, but I mean, you're going to be dealing with the, the defense, federal acquisitions regulations, which I think if they were in this room, we couldn't occupy it, <laughs> right? Um, they design and supply all the defense articles we think about as export regulated materials. Um, and I think they probably are on the front lines of defending against the theft of trade secrets, to be perfectly blunt, by state actors and uh, defending against the loss of their intellectual property. Frankly, Northrop Grumman, all of our aerospace industry has been, uh, quite frankly, the best in the world, unparalleled. Um, but also, uh, I would mention at this point, you probably had to deal with a lot of public-private partnerships as well, which is something that we talk about quite a bit um, on the committee. Um, did I miss any of those, Judy? <laughs> Judy's very polite, sitting there sort of nodding like, yeah, that sounds right. No, and, and you know, there's, there's so many um, laws and regulations that come into play in that economic sector. You know, you're thinking about the fact that we're focused at, at Northup certainly on cybersecurity and logistics and automated systems and modernization and, and you know, um, strikes and C4ISR and so much more. And when you think about all that and you're thinking about the hardware and the software, you're thinking about the people who you need as employees who are at the, you know, the, the core of what we used to do each and every day um, and making sure that they are at their best because you are supporting them at their best. 
Um, what you have is a very complex system of work that needs to be done, um, and it's done by a, a law department, whether it's at that company or others in that industry, um, who are an integral part of delivery of the, the products and services that the companies deliver. Um, so it's really about the lawyer being a critical part of the team um, and making sure that you're providing the guidance um, and the advice that's necessary in order for the company to not only do its work and perform, but to do its best work. Well, we, you know, we love the, the, the fact that a lot of young lawyers and a lot of law students listen to this podcast. So let's just, on a very elementary level, what does the chief compliance officer of Northrop Grumman do every day? So it's like other chief compliance officers. You're looking at everything from what your policies and procedures are in a company. You're making sure that those policies and procedures are not just on the books, if you will, that they're actively engaged in by the company employees. Are you making sure that you are assessing tone at the top on issues of importance like integrity and competence and and ethics? Um, You're really assisting um, all of the, the business personnel to make sure that within in their business units or the work that they do, that people are trained and tested in a way that makes sense to assure that they not only know about the policies, but that they apply and adhere to them at each and every turn. You're making sure that there's um, an environment in which people are very confident that they can report things. And when they see something that's not going right or doesn't look right to them, that they know that they are empowered to be able to report what they need to report in order that, um, you know, that a, a a company can take corrective action and act accordingly to not only, um, you know, address the problems that are there, but as you go through those lessons learned, you also see things that you want to improve on. Even if something's working and it's working well, I think we were always in a mode um, at that company, and I think it's really true, uh, back to Alyssa's point about the defense and aerospace industry as a whole, um, that you really work um, as a matter of course, as a matter of everyday um, business to assure that you're in a mode of continuous improvement. Um, and that takes not only the person at the, um, on, the, on the assembly line and a manufacturing component of the company, but it takes people who are middle managers. It takes people who are supervisors. It takes people who are in executive level positions. It takes a real strong tone at the top, um, and it takes an engaged board. Interesting. So that's a big job. Listeners, young people, (laughs) that's a big job, heavy responsibility. Um, But I also think it's a job that um, a lot of lawyers are understanding the value that they can bring to those positions. Um, And there's different models for the job on whether that's a compliance job within or outside the legal department. There's uh, different ways of looking at that. Um, But what it has to be is a team effort. And what you know is that you work as a chief compliance officer hand-in-hand with your ethics officers. Um, You work with your lawyers, but you also have a sense that you go to the business people in your uh, company. Um, you are walking the halls, you are making sure that you are accessible and others on your team are accessible so that they have a real comfort level um, with you so that they know that they can work with you on a regular basis. Awesome. All right. So we're living in some slightly politically charged times um, and we are, you know, we always return to the foundation of rule of law. Um, But foreign interference does threaten our central democratic institutions by corrupting Americans' understanding of democracy. So the the ABA has developed a social media campaign to try to reverse this dangerous course, 
called Stand With Us. Can you talk to us about this and what can our listeners do to support this important effort? You know, that project is really about the creative genius of the professional staff on the ABA. Uh, We brought together members of our team from the Rule of Law Initiative that operates all over the world um, in promoting the rule of law on behalf of uh, the good work of the ABA. Um, We brought together people from the Public Education Division of the ABA, uh, the Governmental Affairs Office, and the Creative Team in Design, and the Social Media Content Team, and put together a 59-second video that is not meant for lawyers or for judges. It's meant really for the general public to help them understand and to start conversations about terms that they are hearing each and every day on television and on radio and in print. And it talks about what the rule of law means. It means uh, a fair and impartial judiciary. It means judicial independence. It means transparency in law. It means so much more, and we want to make sure that the public understands what that term means. Um, When people hear about the term rule of law, do they think about equality? Do they think about um, that it means that the courts are open, that legislators um, and and lawmakers are accessible, and that people have the power of the vote in order to make sure that their voice is heard? So we are have it out everywhere on LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and we really hope that people will pick it up and will really share it with their own communities and their own networks, whether you're a lawyer, a judge, or somebody who just happens upon it. Um, getting it out to young people across the country of all ages, it's interactive, and so that it's something that's really um, you know, fun to watch in 59 seconds. It's really chock full of a message, and we're hopeful that we'll just spread it across the United States and beyond. Okay, so everybody, tag it. And link to it. it. Put it on your LinkedIn. Share it. We'll have it in our show notes. Thank you so much for talking to us. Definitely put it in the notes. (laughs) All right. So so something struck me in your recent remarks at the annual review uh, of national security law at the conference. Um, Specifically, you described the 19th Amendment, which, of course, we're celebrating through our process here in the podcast. But you described it as the single greatest expansion of democracy in our history. I loved that. Can you talk about what you meant? Because I I recognize as we sit here as a statistical matter, women constitute 52% of the United States population. Giving 52% of the population the right to vote. Wow. So that's actually a phrase that I picked up from someone else, and I'm so pleased that she shared it with me, um, because it really does tell the story, doesn't it? Um, You know, when you think about the fact that women were denied the right to vote for so long, and that there was so much courage and grit and determination that went into an over 50-year battle to achieve the right to vote, and to put it down in our Constitution was critically important uh, for so many to see and to witness and to hear about. Um, And what it meant was that women became not only a voice within the electoral process, but they started to become a part of our democracy. Um, They started to engage. And although we have in no sense reached parity with regard to women's participation in Congress, um, and, you know, it's not at the levels in any sense that any of us consider successful, um, what we do know is that women outvote in terms of proportion of registered voters. They outvote men in every election since the 1980s. Um, We also know know that women um, need to have a greater 
um, participation in state legislatures. There's only one state where women have reached gender parity, and that's in New Hampshire. Um, in terms of state legislatures. And there's so much more for women to do, and I think we've just started to see the beginning of the impact and the influence of women in government um, in and all sectors across the states. Yeah, well, we have a long way to go, but there are we are breaking records every election cycle of women participating, women running, women voting, women canvassing. It's really exciting. Um, I think that the suffragettes would be proud of us, but we do have still a long way to go. You know, and I think some of the biggest smiles I see are, for instance, I have three boys and a girl, and I can't tell you that I know my three boys get it as much as my my daughter. You know, they understand the power that women bring to a conversation, the different perspectives they bring. Uh, they understand that those approaches um, are sometimes what's needed in our country in order to, um, you know, instill a sense of civility, in order to instill a sense that we can drive to a solution that will make a difference in the long term. And I think you're seeing that that powerful force come out now. I would agree with that. Let me just add one thing to your point about the suffragettes. Um, I, I would just remind our listeners that they were beaten, jailed, um, that they suffered quite a bit more than I think um, had, we've been taught when we were, were in school. Um, and it did take 50 years. However, it is important to note there were states where women actually did vote, like of all places, Utah. Um, <laughs> So we'll also be giving a little bit more of that history in the coming weeks, and we'll hyperlink a couple of articles on that. And if I may say one more thing, and that is if we take this opportunity to celebrate this centennial, which is so critically important to our nation and continues to be, but if we don't also look at the lessons learned out of that battle by the suffragists, um, what we know is that it wasn't um, something that was without classism and racism in terms of a battle. We have to yes, tell that story true. truthfully. We have to learn from it, and we have to look forward. Um, as we go forward, we have to make sure that we are taking what they did and really um, leveraging all of their battles to assure that we are not only women who have been positively impacted and engaged because of their fight, but also that we leave no one else behind. The disenfranchised are many, and they cut across a lot of different lines and classes, and we want to make sure that we bring them into the ranks as they're entitled to be. And I'd also like to just kind of tie this in. I think you know, maybe some of our listeners are going, what does this have to do with national security? Well, it has a lot to do with national security. I mean, there's been study after study that's been shown, especially in the defense sector, that when there are more women, um, you're more effective. Uh, when we looked at, um, at the Defense Department, uh, women in combat, this, this issue has been studied and studied, and all of the um, all of the research shows that governments are stronger, defense sectors are stronger, commercial um, output is stronger. All of these things are pillars of our national security. All of those things are strengthened when there is more inclusion, including racial, you know, gender uh, parity. True, and I would point out to our listeners who don't already know this, it was a woman who figured out what Alder James was doing. It was a woman <laughs> who found out what Hansen was doing in the FBI. Oh, these oh. are famous spots. Okay, all you young Absolutely. listeners who did not live through yes. this. Look them up. Yeah. These are, yes, <laughs> you know, Alder they, James. They, were, they weren't out with the, you know, the evening booze runs at the strip clubs. They were looking critically at what was going on and asking questions. And that's literally... Uh, a plus. And That's a benefit. The woman who figured out where Osama bin Laden, let's not forget her. Let's not forget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever her real name is. Exactly. <laughs> well, to pivot from the fight for suffrage to talking about civility in our modern day, there are times when it seems like it's 
uh, eroding, but civility and respect promote our essential constitutional values. Could you talk more about that and about the role of our members, ABA membership, in promoting civility in our country? Well, I look at, of course, our ABA members and lawyers in general, each as individuals, um, that they play a critical role in civil society. Um, they are lawyer statespersons, and in every community across this country, small towns to big cities, lawyers have historically and today continue to play a role in making sure that we are addressing access to justice issues, social justice issues, governance issues within our towns and cities, and so much more. And as a consequence, people rightfully look to lawyers uh, as leaders. They look to lawyers to make sure that uh, where they should follow next. And so it's important that we lawyers help them understand the value of civility and professionalism and ethics. And so what we do in the ABA is make sure that we encourage our members to bring to the public square, to the coffee shop, to the diner, and to their places of worship um, all they can do in terms of lessons on civility, the way they act, but also the way that they can help people engage when there's polar opposite positions, um, just like lawyers do each day in a courtroom. Um, they come in the courtroom with differing positions. They will fight for their hardest uh, on behalf of their clients' interests, and they walk out and understand that because they are professionals, uh, they can still have conversations of civility and conversations of meaning and still fight for all they need to on behalf of their clients. So we want to promote that notion, um, whether it's in um, our, our, our places where our laws and policies are made or whether it's on the streets. And one of the greatest, I think, examples of that is the American Bar Association House of Delegates, which is our policymaking body of over 600 lawyers from across the country who develop the policies of the American Bar Association. If you ever have an opportunity to go in and watch those deliberations, um, they are of the greatest civility, um, the highest um, caliber debate, and we come to um, the vote of the House um, on hard-fought hard fought policies um, positions that end up being the work we do and implement in the American Bar Association across m a lots of issues. So the stereotype of that hard-fighting, you know, irascible, um, unpleasant lawyer just isn't true? Is that what you're saying? There are certainly examples of that out there. Um, but I would suggest to you that after many years of, of litigation and then watching firms that I had the privilege of managing when I was in-house for a dozen years, um, that I have seen um, ample more examples of lawyers who make a difference because they are the picture of civility, because they understand that their voice is most effective when it's not raised, um, that they understand that the most important thing that they have to deliver is a message about their position or their case, as opposed to one about what's wrong um, with the world or what's wrong with uh, the other person on a personal level. Um, and that's why I think the ABA is so um, concerned and so attentive to any attacks on personal attacks on the judiciary today. Um, because we know that judicial independence is critically important. But we also know that those are dedicated public servants. And while you may disagree with a position or a decision that they render um, as a matter of the merits of a case, um, that there is no room for, no need for, and certainly it is inappropriate to attack them on a personal level um, when they are just giving so much to our country and to the third co-equal branch of government. Agreed. And I would point out this week that there was some emphasis during the testimony, because we are in a week right now where we're hearing about um, 
the issues involving Ukraine and, and the whistleblower and so on. But one of the comments yesterday was on how desperately they needed a judiciary in the Ukraine modeled on our own in order to put corruption behind um, and have a judiciary they could respect. Uh, so it would be lovely if the world could embrace that as well. So, Judy, you're talking about the ABA House of Delegates and people interacting IRL in real life, as the old people would say. <laughs> and real um, <laughs> Yeah, Latin. Um, but there's, you know, we're, there's a trend where people are moving away from getting together um, and, and coming to our breakfasts and conferences and just coming to the, or just showing up for webinars for CLE or um, just, you know, going to their computers for information. Uh, how can we ensure as the ABA that everybody has opportunities to come together in professional settings and interact um, as, as a lawyer community? And, and what's the difference between, I mean, look, you can meet people on LinkedIn, but is it really the same? Um, is, the, is the distant but convenient engagement, is that enough for people who want to um, engage in professional associations and benefit from them? So I think the ABA, like so many other national professional organizations, both here in the United States and globally, um, what we're seeing is that people want to engage on their terms. Um, and so what we need to do is to make sure we are going to them in a way that we deliver the products and services, the publications, the content that they are interested in. Um, but we also know that we provide a sense of community. And what we are seeing in younger people is that it's not so much that they don't want to join. They want to join organizations with purpose. They want to join communities in which they particularly want to engage. So what we are doing is make sure, making sure that we are listening to law students and to young lawyers about how they want to engage. Um, just today, I was at Howard uh, University Law School um, visiting them and sitting down with students to better understand uh, what they were looking for um, in the profession as a whole and in the ABA and their dean was extraordinarily um, wonderful in our hospitality and the students were asking really great questions. Um, making sure that we're doing that kind of outreach I think is um, powerfully important not only to the students in the room and I go to law schools in every city I travel to, as, as well as uh, the president-elect of the association. Uh, Trish Rifo is doing that as often as possible. Um, but it's not only about going there and talking with them. It's about listening. Um, to your question about what's enough, um, what we know is that people benefit so greatly from the um, what I call the high touch, the personal interaction, and we want to make sure we give them those opportunities. When I think back to my time um, as a law student and then when I came to the ABA after one year of practice in 1983, I know looking back and I soon knew right after I started in the ABA and got involved in my state bar and my local bar that I likely would not have had been exposed to the caliber of speakers, uh, to the panels of experts, to the individuals who really took hold of and made sure that they mentored me and told me about the ways that I could really learn more about the practice um, in terms of practice uh, methods and, and good ways to be a better lawyer and more competent, but also to really help me understand the role of lawyer in society and the role as, as of a lawyer as a statesperson. 
So based on my personal experience, I can tell you there is great value to being engaged in the ABA on a personal level, on a level where you come to conferences, uh, where we make sure, though, that those conferences are formatted in a way that fit with the schedules of young lawyers today. Uh, we know that uh, law firms particularly, and also the government agencies and in-house are struggling to make sure that they can support and give resources to uh, lawyers in this country, um, but we also know that they know the value of the ABA. And when you look at not only the now 450 uh, continuing legal education programs that are available for with your membership, uh, when you look at the publications, the tens of thousands of publications we have available, and when you add to that the opportunities for conferences like the upcoming um, monthly breakfast that's going to be in D.C. Uh, that the Law and National Security Committee sponsors every month. Um, the one that's coming up is on December 4th on deep fakes, and I'm sure we'll talk huge, about that huge. in a minute. Yes. Um, it is not only about hearing from a high-quality speaker when you go to an event like that, but it's about networking. It's about meeting potential new mentors um, or maybe even meeting mentees because I learn from my mentees all the time um, and making sure that you're staying in touch with what's cutting edge, what's important to our profession, and most importantly, what's important to the people we serve. That's awesome. Uh, Judy, it's been a pleasure to have you here tonight, and we're going to wish you the best as you spread these important uh, messages, which I don't consider just ABA messages. I think they're uh, essential to our American democracy right now at this time in our lives when we're uh, assaulted on multi-planes by information that can confuse us. Um, so we really value you coming in and talking about these things oh, today. What a pleasure. Thank you. And I wish you all the best of, uh, in all your work that you do. And thanks so much for the contributions each and every one of you make to the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security and the community that you serve. Uh, before we, we cycle out of the podcast, though, I want to tell our listeners about a very important uh, breakfast that we're going to have on de Wednesday, December 4th at 8 a.m. at the University Club, which is easily accessible on Bikeshare. You can take the Farragut North Metro or McPherson Square. You can hit the red, blue, silver lines. I don't care. Just be there. There are tons of scooters if you need that last mile. The important thing is that uh, this, is a, this is a breakfast where the speaker is Matthew Ferraro, who's going to talk about deep fakes. Uh, that is very important. We're approaching an election year. You're stewards of the Constitution and our American democracy, folks. We hope you can show up. Uh, we will hyperlink the registration, I guess, uh, for the breakfast. And thank you for listening tonight. We really appreciate you tuning in. You can find the links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, where you'll also find the registration link for that breakfast on deepfakes that Elisa just mentioned. Uh, you can also find all that in the notes to this podcast. Please join us in promoting Stand With Us. Support the rule of law and spread the word. You can find more about Stand With Us in the notes to this cast as well. Don't sit on the sidelines. Stand with us. Share it on your Twitter and Facebook and all of the other things. Yes. Have your grandmother share it. Have your grandmother and help her. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.